0: down to chapter 31 last time, so I'll pick it up there. (coughs) It says that Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, he's been discussing the laws of God with them now, for through the book of Deuteronomy and now has personal things to say that came from God, so it's important for us to understand this, just once more, does it really apply to us? and uh, I had not mentioned this. I don't think before any time in this series, but I can remember back in the Herbert Armstrong coming out of XTLO and in Mexico, and preaching about the blessings and curses chapters of the and of Deuteronomy. And he very much felt that all of these scriptures apply. To end time Israel. I don't think he understood fully how they apply the church, the spiritual Israel, but he certainly understood them was applied to physical Israel here in the end time. So I guess what I'm saying is this isn't something Darrell came up with, this is something the church has understood that I hear in the end time that. This did apply to the end-time church as much as it did, perhaps more so, than it did even to those people who were about to go into the promised land at that time. So this is very timely, and as we've already seen, many of the things that he talks about here are already have already befallen the church on a spiritual level, and they are certainly beginning to happen to the physical nation around us as well. So with that background, again, let's go here and say that Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and all Israel then would be inclusive of Israel today. <laughs> and he said to them, I am 120 years old this day, that I can no more go out and come in. So he was feeling his age, uh, getting up there to 120. None of us have reached that, but they lived longer in those days, and it does say in another place that his eye was not dead, so well, it's the obvious feeling his age. Uh, also, the Eternal has said to me, over the Jordan. So he realized his life was at its culmination, and that also Israel was about to go into Jordan, so he recognized that it was time for him to die. They were prepared. they wandered 40 years. The 40 years was up. It was time. He understood that, he understood that he couldn't go, so he knew that his time to die had arrived. The eternal your God, we will go over before you. So these are his parting words, these last few chapters, the last things that Moses had to say to Israel. We might be reminded that God is going to send the types again here at the end time of Moses and Elijah in the form of two witnesses against this world. So the words of Moses are very, very important, and I think that they will be used again here in the end time upon Israel, because they are timeless words, and God did not choose to use others as a type, but Moses and Elijah here in the end, as it says at the end of the book of Malachi, as uh, Rebbebel of Joshua as well, and Haggai and Zechariah, but Even they will show up as Moses and Elijah at the end, as John the Baptist even did before Christ came to the earth the first time. But before the destruction of John the Baptist, as witness, is not enough. God never does anything without two or three witnesses. So Moses' words should be very alive to us today, knowing that God chose him followed with a type for the end time. Anyway, you shall not go over this Jordan, was said to Moses by God. He says, Eternal your God, he will go over before you. So he says, I won't go with you, but God will. And he will destroy these nations from before you. And you shall possess them. So he's telling them what is about to transpire. They are going to go into the land and God will destroy the nations before them. Just the same thing here at the end time, as we go to many, many prophecies which show that that is the case for today. In Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, and so on. We won't tie that all together again today for sake of time. Uh, In Joshua, he shall go over before you as the eternal is said. The God has used that name Joshua or Yahshua <coughs> several times. He uses it here because there was one named Joshua who was to lead them on over at the time of Moses' physical death. Moses has not died in word. He's still very much with us, and his words are quoted a great deal in the New Testament. But there will be a type of Moses again to speak these words and those of the New Testament again as well. But he used one name, Joshua, then, says he will do the same with a type in Zechariah 3. And, of course, Christ's name itself was derived as Joshua or Yeshua, which we shortened in Greek, I guess, to Jesus. But uh, that was the word that it came from. And he, of course, is the ultimate uh, type. that's not just type, but the ultimate fulfillment of all the types. And he is the deliverer. He is the redeemer. He is the one who is going to see us into the promised land and into the kingdom of God. So God uses these names over and over uh, throughout the Bible and that makes them fit even better when we apply them to the end time. Verse 4, And the Eternal said uh, to them as he did, or shall do to them as he did to Sihon and to Og. Kings of the Amorites, and of the land of them whom he destroyed. It is interesting again that we have Octoden in the land of Utah in the southwestern U.S., and the Morites, or the Amorites, uh, I think probably are also as well there. The Boer men, or Morites. Interesting that the land that God is leading us to has these names very, very much implanted upon. Uh, verse 5, And the eternal shall give them up before your face, that you may do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. He told them at that time to go through and physically kill them, uh, and take the land, that he would go before them and make sure that they ran before Israel if they would obey There were times when they didn't do it the way God said, and it came back on them in a very bloody way. We must be careful to do exactly what God commands. And then his advice to them, in terms of attitude and approach, how they should go in, was to be strong, don't be weak, don't be sniveling, don't be apologetic. Uh, Yes, we're to be humble, we're to be meek. But at the same time, we're to be strong. We're not to back down. We are to move forward. The righteous are bold as a lion. A, we need to become righteous. And B, if we do so, that righteousness will cause us to be bold as a lion. So be of good courage and fear not. Uh, these words have echoed in the end of Zephaniah and in Haggai and, and Isaiah and other places. To the end time church so he's repeating in those end time prophecies what Moses said here as they were about to go into that land so this is the attitude with which we should approach him be strong and of a good courage very courageous not shrinking back in fear God has no pleasure in those who shrink back fear not so we're told do not fear and the Opposite of fear, really, is faith, trust, reliance upon God. If you really grasp that God is on your side, what do you have to fear? And that's what Christ said over and over. He says, fear him who is able to destroy the body of soul, not just the body. Mankind, God has control of both physical and eternal life. For the eternal, your God, he it is that does so with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. For God has promised he would be there, wouldn't fail, wouldn't forsake. So then, what do you have to say? We tend to look at things from a physical standpoint. God says, don't do that. If you're thinking physically, you're afraid of whatever enemies might come against you. If you're thinking spiritually, you fear to disobey God and you put your life in his hands. We are here to prove that in little things, in terms of health and wealth, in terms of all phases of our lives if we put in God's hands, do things his way, and he says he will bless us if we do so. But we have trouble even with these little things. We wonder if we will be faithful when the big things come. And Christ answers that very clearly. If you're faithful in little, you will be faithful in much. You can rest assured that if you can put the little, smaller things like physical life and jobs and wealth and various things in his hands, obey him, keep his laws regarding those things, and those are little things compared to the big things that are to come. And he says, if you're faithful in those, you have established a pattern, a character, a way of doing things that is in line with God's laws, and he will take care of it. And you will be faithful when the big task comes. Some others say, well, I've heard people say, and I've said it myself, well, I don't know whether I can handle something huge, something scary that comes along. Well, are you handling the little things that you are afraid of in day-to-day life? If do, and, if you are, then when the really big test comes, you can rest assured you'll you'll pass that as well. And Moses called to Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel, so he didn't just take Joshua to the side to talk to him, he pulled him aside and gave him instructions in front of all the congregation. Sebulun in the sight of all Israel, be strong and of a good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Eternal has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. That was true then going into the original promised plan, and God is about to give us again the original promised plan. He will do that. shall see where that is. I think we pretty well know now, but there would be great skepticism among the rest of the church about where that might be, but time will tell, and God will make his hand though. And the eternal, he it is, that does go before you. He will be with you, he will not fail you, neither forsake you, fear not, neither be dismayed. So he told the people, and he told Joshua in front of the people. So they knew what their leader was instructed to do. And we should know what our leadership is instructed to do today. Sometimes we might not like what our leaders do. It has always been that way. It was that way in ancient Israel. It was that way with Adam and Eve. God was their direct leader. And They didn't always agree with him. They selected a different leader. So mankind has always been that way. They haven't always wanted to do what the leadership said and said, is this right? Well, the beauty of it for us today is this. God has written out in his word what the leaders need to understand, what they need to do, and has instructed them very carefully from Genesis to Revelation. Revelation. So when we see our leaders doing this or that, it's easy for us to open the book, go through it ourselves, and see if we're being led in a proper direction. God has made a safeguard for us. What does he tell us after the whole Bible is over at Revelation 22? Everything has been said that is going to be said. And he says, keep the commandments. Well, in the Worldwide Church of God, we had leadership that said that commandments are to be kept. And then we had leadership take over who said the commandments are done away. Well, we had half the church say, well, commandments must be done away. They did not do due diligence. They did not go back to the last book of Revelation and see the summary Of what has been told us to do. Keep the commandments. There's a bunch of them there. It talks about the various types of people who will not be in the kingdom of God. So God has laid it out for you. They're giving you soft, sweet things, sermons. Then you should check and see if that's what you ought to be hearing. We can find places in God's Word which says we shouldn't be a reed shaken in the wind. We should cry aloud, spare not, and tell God's people their sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. So we have to be preaching the law and telling people when they're just transgressing the law. So you see just there in a couple of small examples, well, there's actually large examples, but in a couple of examples, uh, that's You have it laid out for you. And if you hear anything different than what you read in those scriptures and many, many, many others, then you're listening to the wrong thing. And you need to find someone who's doing what God is saying here. And is saying throughout his word. Now, can these words be twisted? Yes, they can. Many of them can be left out. You know, they take something maybe that Paul wrote that was difficult to understand, and Peter said, I think man, I can't even understand Paul. He's hardly to be understood. So it's obvious from testimony, even inside God's word, that Paul wrote some things that were difficult to understand. Well, Peter wrote them pretty clearly. <laughs> James wrote them pretty clearly. Uh, Christ himself is very clear about keeping the law. And then you go to John, who was very straightforward and said that if you love God, you will keep the commandments. That's John 5, three. So, you take those clear statements and that last statement at the end of the book of Revelation, where John again summarizes our conduct and shows us that the law is to be kept. People take something from Paul that might be written in a difficult or a genetic or an intellectual fashion and twist it around and get away from the very plain, clear statements of God's word. Now, is this important? Well, I would think so when over half the church left, well over half left, and many of those who are still sticking with it. Are hearing smooth, easy things and being told they're fine. But everything is just hunky dory. And yet, at the time when we're scattered and spewed out, and God says He's angry with us. So, is this important? Well, I should say so. Uh, we better be checking God's Word and seeing what God says and see if whatever leadership we're listening to at the moment is doing it the way God says. That's about as important a concept as we can get. Verse 9, and Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, which bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the feast of tabernacles, the seventh year is an important year, if you put it here, a solemn year, or an important year, a year to be noted, and a year to read, This book of the law, again, every seven years at the Beats of Tabernacles. We started this and are reading it, or did read this past Beats of Tabernacles, seventh year after we entered into the land that we are now on. We have to date it basically on our own history, we can't on everybody else's. Uh, So that's the year we feel we should have read it, read most of it, didn't make it, but we're still working on it. At the time or when all Israel has come to appear before the eternal your God in the place which he shall choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. And I submit that if we have discovered the true knowledge of the true promised land and where Zion and the true Jerusalem are, that this is the first time that this demand has been kept probably since Jerusalem began to be barren and desolate over many generations because it's only recently that we have learned that the true Jerusalem is not in the Middle East but was originally here. So you're experiencing something, living something that has not been done for actually thousands of years. Probably about 2,000 since Christ walked the land of the southwestern U.S. All right, gather the people together, men and women and children, and your stranger that is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the eternal your God and observe to do all the words of this law. And that their children, which have not known anything, may hear and learn to fear the eternal your God as long as you live in the land where you go over over Jordan to possess it. It's a different Jordan than that one that we know of in the Middle East today. God hid the evidence. He wanted Jerusalem to be barren. He wanted it to be desolate for many generations. And it has been. It says a little later on in this book before it ends that he will choose Jerusalem again. It wasn't chosen once kept but it will be chosen again. We'll see that as we move on. Verse 14, And the Eternal said to Moses, Behold, the day your days approach that you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of the congregation, that I may give him a charge, an assignment, a commission to do. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Eternal appeared in the tabernacle in a pillar of a cloud, and the pillar of the cloud stood over the door of the tabernacle. Now, be reminded that in Zechariah 2, he says that in the end time, in the time of the end time church, when the temple is to be built, uh, at the time of the two witnesses and the witness of the rest of the congregation, that he will be a wall of fire around and a, uh, a shield or a cover from the heat. So... He says he will come and dwell with us. I I want to go back to Haggai just for a moment and tie this in because it it helps us maybe understand something here about the end as well. Let's go to Haggai 1. We've been over this several times now. But there's something in here I think is important for us to realize right now in, in wrestling with and considering some of the things that we are considering. Uh, in the first chapter of Haggai, he addresses uh, Rubel and Joshua. And those in verse 2 Thus speaks the eternal host, saying, This people say. Now, who is it speaking to? It's speaking to spiritual Israel, to the church in the end time, and that's easy to prove because if you go to the end of Haggai, uh, he says he will shake the heavens and the earth in chapter 2, 21. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms and destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and so on. So he's talking about the end time events. So this is indeed an end time prophecy, this book of Haggai. It's not something for way back then. It's right at the end of the time when the day of the Lord is coming, and the heavens and the earth will be shaken. So he's speaking here to spiritual Israel. Uh, I think we would all understand that, because look what it says. Thus speaks the children of the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built." Now let's think about that for a moment. If this is end-time prophecy, which it is, doesn't the whole church say the spiritual temple must be built? The temple of our body, the temple of church. So if the church is saved, the spiritual temple must be built. That's all that matters. And we, over the years, adopted that approach. We said the Jews might build a physical temple in Jerusalem, and that would fulfill the prophecies of a physical temple. So we did not completely deny the idea of an end physical temple being built. We just figured that the Jews would do it. But this is not addressed to the Jews. This is addressed to God's end-time church. And it says, This people say." This is not the time to build the temple. But I submit to you that there is not one splinter group on the face of this earth that you could go to and say it is not time to build a spiritual temple, and that they would agree with you. They all, I think, without fail, would say it is time to build a spiritual temple. That being the case, what is this talking about? They This people doesn't say it's not time to build the spiritual temple, but I think if you went to all those churches, all those splinter groups, and you said it's time to build the physical temple, almost invariably they would say, no, it is not. There might be a group somewhere besides us who would say, yeah, we should build a physical temple, but it would not be very many of them. Will be almost the entire majority, entire group. Now that tells me right here, loud and clear. But very likely, we have to build physical temples. They all say build a spiritual, but everybody says no, don't build a physical. How could you interpret this? How could you read it? Put the questions to them. Ask them yourself. Write them all an email. Write all the churches you can find and ask them if it's a time to build a spiritual temple. Then write them another email and say, it's it time to build a physical temple? I can guarantee you what the results will be. So if God says they say it's not time to build a temple, then they must be talking about the physical, not the spiritual. Okay? Does that make any sense? Anytime he says, is it time for you to live in your fancy houses, and this house, why waste? Now, if he's talking, I say, oh, of course I agree, we're supposed to build a spiritual temple. There's no question about that. I agree with that, too. I would say yes to that. But now I'm beginning to maybe realize I should also yes to a physical temple. And I think it's probably Ezekiel's temple. That's the only one that has not been built. And it shows in the context that it's to be built just before the millennium, not during it. The new heavens and new earth and the spiritual temple is coming down at the beginning of the millennium. That's clear in Revelation 21. We went through that in the series on how exclusive is the church. and shows that very, I think, plainly. If you haven't heard that, maybe you need to review it. I would encourage you to do that. Because if the eternal spiritual temple, the house of God, New Jerusalem is coming at that time, and the Father and the Son are the temple thereof, and then there has to be a temple prior to that. The only time the he temple could be built is between now and then. Even the commentaries recognize that that temple was never built. And it's not the same as Solomon's or Herod's. It's different. The dimensions are different. The size of land, everything is different. And the only time left is point now and the time the new heavens and the new earth come down. So, just an additional thing I wanted to throw in. If he does say there in Ezekiel that he will come and dwell in that temple, what does he say to us in Zechariah 2? In verse uh, 19, or verse 10, Zechariah like right 2 10. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil of their servants. And you shall know that the eternal host has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the eternal. And he's speaking here in the context of the end church of the two witnesses. He's going to come and dwell with us at that time. Well, does he need a dwelling place? Where will he dwell? He says he will come. His glory will fill Ezekiel's temple. His glory filled Solomon's temple. It never did fill the uh, rebel Bell's or Herod's temple. Never happened. But it will be Ezekiel's temple. And he clearly shows us that he was going to come and dwell with us. And then in the well, just before that, he talks about how he will be a wall of fire and a covert from the heat. So it's the same type of language that Moses is using back here in Deuteronomy 32. There is a challenge, there is a job before God's people. I find it interesting that Ezekiel, doesn't say what the building materials are to be. It gives the dimensions. It says where it should be, but it does not give the building materials. And yet in Haggai 1, it says, go up the mountains. bring wood and build the temple. So I think that if Ezekiel's temple is to physically be built, it is to be a wooden edifice, not of stone or uh, other materials, but of wood. seems to be the case. And ironically, if that were to be done in the Middle East over there, there aren't some mountains nearby that you can go and bring wood to build a temple with. Uh, If the site of, I think, the original Jerusalem. There are mountains nearby, and there is plenty of material big trees to build it with. So, just a sidelight, kind of slowed down our progress here, but I I want us to grasp and understand that even as they were about to enter into land with things to do, we are to enter into the land as well with things to do. God would have to give us the right area, make sure we have control of it in order for that to happen. And he is the one who goes before us to take care of that situation. Verse 8, it says, He it is goes be before you, he will be with you, he will not fail you, he will save you, fear not, neither be dismayed. So, we're going down in verse 8, we're going down where we were, <coughs> Uh, tells Moses he had to die and he gave them a charge. Uh, he appeared in verse 15 uh, as, over the pillar as a cloud. Verse 16 And the eternal said to Moses, Behold, you shall sleep with your fathers, and this people will rise up and go abhorring after the gods of the strangers of the land. Now, isn't that is a strange thing when you've gone through 40 years of privation? 40 years of not going into a land promised to you. And your fathers and mothers have all died. And you are there, about to go in and possess a new land, a promised land. God is going to go before you, and He's going to destroy your enemies, drive them out before you. And it's a time of hope. It's a time of excitement. It's a time of great anticipation. And yet here's the leader, who just led you for 40 years, saying, I'm about to go die. But this people will rise up and go boring after the gods and the strangers of the land, where they go to be among them, and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. And even when we came into this land, we almost immediately departed from God. Some kept the Sabbath, some kept the holy days, as I've said. When the children planted here, they quickly forgot it. The only opportunity in obeying God was passed us. We accepted pagan gods, wrong gods, and worship of Satan again. So we've done the same thing in this land that God said would happen to ancient Israel, and even the church. We came out, we committed ourselves, we said, I will obey your words, I will put you first, and then we've gone after the gods of the We still follow the gods, materiality, of immorality, of faith's way of life, and yes, it was getting into the church pretty badly. Even Ambassador College had become a den of iniquity. The morals and character that had been fought there in the early years completely dissipated and had become like any other worldly institution by the time that it came apart by that time God scattered the church scattered and stopped at Masseter College so this prophecy was to them and it was to America today and the other nations of Israel and it was to spiritual Israel, the church, and a pastor, a college, and everything we have done. We were not seeking God in the way that we we're supposed, supposed to have, and he scattered us. He's about to scatter the physical nation in the same way that he scattered the church, only it will be physical, not just spiritual. So, even at a time of great anticipation, we're anticipating the end of the age. We're anticipating the return of our Savior. The whole world, the whole so called Christian world, is anticipating Christ is going to return fairly soon. They talk about the rapture. They talk about end time events. You can get on the internet or on the list of preachers on the radio and television, and many of them are talking about how we're at the end of the age. They anticipate Christ returning very soon. So we're in a time of great anticipation. Just as, in the days when Christ was born, they knew it was close to time, and there was a lot of rumor, there was a lot of speculation of when Christ would be born, and where, and how, and all the things that went about it. And then Herod heard those, after he had been born, and tried to kill every man-child, to destroy him, because he knew that he was coming as the king of the Jews. prophecies were known to Herod. He was asked to himself. So we're in a time of great anticipation now. And wasn't the church, as it always been at this end time, highly anticipating? Didn't we figure out what we thought were direct dates? Tribulation would start at 72 and Christ would return by 75. And we moved it to 82 and then others have moved it to different times. But we have always, throughout this end time, 70 years plus now, anticipated that Christ's return would be quite soon. And if we anticipated it then, it's even sooner now. We're closer now than we were 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. So it should be getting pretty close. generation can't die out before it happens. So we know that it's close. And yet, right here at the time of the church, the end-time church who thought it was going to run off the Peter and be saved, got scattered instead. God knew this entire church would go whoring after other gods that indeed we have done if not kept the first commandment and we have been scattered as a result so what Moses said to them and knew would happen is something that God would happen and foretold and forecast for us and it has happened so it was written here in Deuteronomy and it was also written in Revelation 3 so we would be this way it will have to be scattered the more things are different the more they're the same verse 17 then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and I will hide my face from them we've read many times in Isaiah through the different places of the prophecies where God said here be and he would hide his face from us and they shall be devoured and many evils and troubles shall befall them we had lots of trials, troubles, and tribulations, and are they increasing in America and in the church today, both? So that they will say in that day, are not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I think we can say that, and we have said that, that the troubles we're having are because God is in his face and is not, in that sense, among us. When he spews you out of his mouth, you cannot say he is then among you. <laughs> uh, I have always been recoiled and backed off from any time I bark. I didn't want any part of it. In fact, I wanted to get rid of it and get it flushed and the taste worked out of my mouth as soon as possible. That's the way it is when you upchuck. God has upchucked us, up, And he didn't really want anything to do with it. But he said, if we will turn to him with our whole heart, then he will turn his face back to us. Christ's blood will forgive our sins, our iniquities, and it will make this barf that we are look good and taste good and smell good again. Only God can make barf into something good. That's what he's doing with us. Kind of crude, but that's the analogy he used because he wants us to get the point. Therefore, verse 19, Now therefore, write you this song before you that teaches the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. So here is a song that was to be written, it was to be recorded, and it was to be sung over the years we have anybody left among us who is able to compose music? Maybe the song that is written here ought to be turned into a hymn. Maybe we ought to sing it, because that's what God says here. Sung as a witness. It's interesting. We're going to see the word witness used three times in this chapter, but we now the end of And here God tells us in Isaiah 41 that so we are his witnesses, speaking of the end-time church. The end time faithful remnant, if we're part of that. But we are his witnesses. So Moses used the same language with them as God uses in the end time for us. So this psalm will be a witness for God against the children of Israel. For when I shall have brought them into the land which I swore to their fathers, that flows with milk and honey, he brought us back to America. and He gave us this bountiful land, the most productive, the richest land on the face of the earth. He said when he did that, land flows with milk and honey, and they shall have eaten and filled themselves and waxed fat. Then will they turn to other gods and serve them and provoke me and break my covenant. And those human individuals he was speaking to that very day, did exactly as he said. And we as a people today have done exactly as this prophecy indicated, That God does call Moses the prophet in various places in the Bible. It shall come to pass for the souls, let's see how I read that, uh, this song shall testify against another witness, for it shall not be forgotten out of the mouths of their seed. So the seed of God's children, seed of Israel, were to remember this, and would not go out of their mouth. For I know their imagination, which they go about, even now, before I have brought them into the land which I swore. Moses could see, in dealing with this on a daily basis over forty years, that even though their fathers and mothers died their carcasses fell in the desert, But these children, now adults, who were going into the land, still did not have the correct attitude. We could perceive their attitudes were still not what they ought to be. And even as we prepare to move forward to do the things that God wants done here in the end, we have to work on our attitudes day in and day out, don't we? Because they get wrong. They get focused on the wrong things. We put other things ahead of God. We give attention and time and energy things other than God. Doesn't mean we can't relax. Doesn't mean we can't have other entertainment from time to time as long as it's not ungodly. But we put so many things ahead of God that he gets squeezed out. He doesn't like that. He's a jealous God. Verse 22. Moses therefore wrote this song the same day and taught it the children of Israel. So there he was. He wrote a song Songwriter, not just prophet. And he gave Joshua, the son of Nun, a charge. It says, Be strong and of a good courage. And so this is repeated several times, isn't it? It was repeated in the book of Joshua, followed with the book of Deuteronomy when they went in. And God told Joshua again these same words. And then he goes forward and says the same things that Zephaniah, Haggai, and Isaiah to the entire church directly. Of time prophecy. Well, this is something. At any time, you are to go forward in spiritual or physical battle for God. You are to have this approach and this attitude. Be strong and of a good courage, not to fear. For you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. It came to pass when Moses had made an end of the writing the words, words of this law in a book. Until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal, saying, Take this book of the law, and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal, your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. I will not be surprised if we do see the Ark of the Covenant here sometime at the end, that that book is there as a witness. Against the end time nations of Israel and the church of God. Many of them have departed from the law of God. It'll be a witness. Second time he uses that. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. Let me talk about it in Hosea about how Israel is a backsliding heifer, got all four feet locked, knees locked, and sliding. Won't follow the lead. What are you going to be when I'm dead? He knew. He understood, he saw, it. he knew human nature. And we thought we would be called out, go to the forms of the, the church, God, everything, in the country, and just the call and go to Petra. It didn't turn out that way. Instead we were scattered. And now we're understanding we're not going to Petra in the first place. We're going into the original promised land. We're going to Zion, the D place of refuge. We're not going to Petra and a Gentile land. Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to record against them. That's a pretty strong pronouncement. Bring them all here and I'm going to speak these words and call heaven and earth as a witness against them. That would be God and man. For I know that after my death you will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. We're in the latter or the last days, and evil is beginning to, has already befallen the church, and it's about to befall the nation, and 90% of the church in a physical level. Because you will do evil in the sight of the eternal, provoke him to anger through the works of your hands. And Moses spoke in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. So he finished writing it, and He looked at the book, then he wrote a song and spoke these words. So here are the words of Moses, here is the song now, chapter 32. Give ear, O you heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Well, here's a song about God and about these people that Moses wrote. So did he say, come here, and I am going to call heaven and earth against you? So he addressed God. Give ear, O you heavens. Listen, God, to what I have to say to your people, because he was speaking here for God. And God underlined, and agreed, and accepted, and included this song in His Word, His Word of which we are to live by every word. So it's in here. And hear, O oh earth! So, so this is a song for God, and it's a song for man. Hear the words of my mouth, and speak them from God's perspective. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Now I find it very interesting to consider here that one of the things God says he's going to bring on us in the end, Matthew twenty four clearly is an end time prophecy, and it talks about drought and famine there just as it does in Ezekiel five and other places. But here God's word is like drops of rain or like the view of the earth, the small rain. And these people, he said, were going to reject the words of God. So he uses drought, both spiritually, as Amos said, drought, famine of the word, and also physical drought, because people reject his words. They reject the gentle, the small way. the the showers and the dew. God's word is gentle and loving and peaceful so long as you keep it. And it produces peace like a gentle rain. But when you disobey God's word, you have hurricanes. You have violent rain. Uh, His word comes back on you in a very hard way. So God says it's he it here in the beginning of this song. His words as a different rain that has followed, nourish. They help. They feed. They make things grow. They make people grow. But if they're denied, um, they are taken away and replaced by something violent. So he introduces the song here of the fruit of the spirit, if you will: love, joy, peace those things that God's Spirit produces in a gentle, loving fashion, God being a loving God when we can choose the things that produce love. So it will come as the small rain upon the tender herb and as the showers upon the grass. Because I will publish the name of the Eternal, ascribe you greatness to our God. So if we have the right attitude and we give God the glory, the honor, the praise that he deserves and we look to him and fear him and serve and obey him, he's going to give us gentle rain that will create growth. He is the rock. His work is perfect. Christ is the rock. chief cornerstone Ephesians 2.20 and other places. It's very clear he is the rock of our salvation. His work is perfect. He's going to do a work of perfection. He's going to bring us to become perfect as God is God. The bride of Christ. We're not there yet, but he's working us in that direction. For all his ways are judgment, good judgment. God of truth, without iniquity, just and right is he. Remember how Adam and Eve's life was pleasant in the garden? They had everything they could possibly need or want. They had each other, and they had God as their lead and their guide, and nothing bit or scratched or hurt or was uncomfortable to them in any way. And they had the gentle view of the garden of Eden. And then when they were stiff-necked and rebellious and looked at someone else, their lives became violent. Angry, hurt, they had a bad relationship between them because they blamed each other, and wife went to hell in a handbasket, to put it crudely. Um, that's just what happened. But they did have a God of no iniquity who was just and right, and it gives them everything you could want. And he promised us that. No more pain, no more fear, no more tears in the world tomorrow if we will do what God says. We'll have everything we could want and nothing to fear. So God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this song is a witness for the end, for all the seed of Israel. But verse 5, there is a problem introduced. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. It's the spot of the devil. They're spotted. Ring strength, Ring strength. They're not pure. They're not like God would have made. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. Our iniquities have cut us off from God, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. And we have spotted like the world, we it's become without spot. Do you thus requite the eternal O foolish people and unwise, isn't this unwise what we have done, brethren? Weren't we unwise in taking God for granted and not being as diligent and as on fire and being lukewarm and da-da-da-da-da, we've got it nice kind of an attitude, and God couldn't handle that. He wants a fiery bride. Christ wants someone who is full of passion and eagerness. Not someone who's not? Oh, well. Is not he your father that has sought you? Has he not made you and established you? Well, look at your beginnings. Where did, where did you come from? Was Darwin right that we crawled out of the sea? Or is there a God? <laughs> Why have we denied him? We act like we crawled out of the sea. We don't look to the one who made us. The world looks to evolution and Darwin or the Big Bang or whatever uh, to show where we came from. No, we came from God. We ask the question, is he not your father that has bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Bought you, what does Paul say? We are bought with a price. Christ was the blood of our Savior. That's what we've been bought with. Now, these people have been bought out of Egypt uh, and delivered through Moses. But we've, he's taken it a step further with us. He's redeemed us from the world through the blood of his son. And he's forgiven us of our sins. And then we took that for granted. So he says, verse 7, continuing in the song, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. And now, we, we look back from a different perspective. We're thousands of years after this was written. And we can look back over the years of the generations of what Israel has done and their sordid past and their temporary lip service that they gave to God. Ask your father and he will show you. What does Christ tell us? Go before God and ask him. Go to your father. Moses gave the same advice. you wonder what's going on, go to God. Check out his word. Your elders, and they will tell you. You go directly to God and ask him, and you should be able to go to the elders of the land, the elders of the church, and they will tell you. The problem is, for the most part, the ministry also is denied the true God of creation, in acts and works and the things that we're doing. And it's that. Verse 8, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of Adam, He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So, He's saying, God did divide the nations, Uh, He divided up the sons of Adam, Came down to Noah, and afterwards the sons of Noah scattered out across the earth, and we are set in on different continents with different bounds. But he considered Israel first. He knew that Israel would become as the sand of the sea and as the stars of the heavens, and he reserved a big, prosperous, bounteous land for Israel, the same one that had been given to them originally. So this land. North America was given to Israel. Some of the tribes are in other lands, yes, but God is going to gather spiritual Israel to this land, which is the original land of Thomas. So he's not going to take the church to Cambodia. He's not going to take it to Jordan. He's not going to take it to Holland or England. He's going to bring it to where the original tribal civilization was. For Israel today is the most prosperous land of milk and honey on the face of the earth. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. So, when he divided the sons of Adam, the sons of Noah, the sons of men, uh, he first considered Israel, and he gave us the best look up the best and better when you do so look for Israel because that's where they'll be verse 10 he found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness he led him about he instructed him he kept him as the apple of his eye well where was Israel wandering where were they found in a waste howling desert wasn't in western Europe wasn't in uh, the rainforest of South America or Asia. It was his. He kept him as the apple of his eye. This has been the nation that has been most blessed because of the age of deflecting the God promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he kept us as the apple of his eye. He delivered us the pharmacy. He made sure that we had everything we could possibly ask for in its end time as a nation and kept us as the apple of his eye, but now he's rejecting and punishing just as he did the church. The end time church of God, the worldwide church of God is the church of God in the end time. The Methodists, the Baptists, the Catholics, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Mormons are not the church of God. Only those who were called under Herbert Armstrong are the Church of God today. (laughs) The only ones he used to choose many. And now out of those many chosen under Herbert Armstrong, he is selecting and choosing a few called now chosen. I know there are those who might take exception to that, and while there are some out there... Sunday keepers will be the kingdom of God. No, there are not. That third series again on the exclusivity of the church was spawned by that very attitude. And I think it knocks that in the head quite clearly if you'll read if you'll listen to all nine, nine uh, sermons there. We need to understand that. If you've not heard those, you need to hear them. All right, verse 11. As an eagle stirs up her nest, flutters over her young, spreads abroad her wings, takes them, bears them on her wings. Christ, there in Matthew 23, talks about how he, like a mother hen, calls his kicks to it. So here he uses an eagle, but it's the same thing in that sense. The bird flutters over the nest, takes care of her young. So the eternal alone did lead him. And there was no strange God with it. So God brought us out. We got rid of the strange gods of this land and committed ourselves to the one true God instead of worshiping a God that we knew not what, as the Jews did and as Christ said they did. They worshiped Satan and didn't know it. And we, I, as a child, went to the Methodist church and worshiped Satan and didn't know it. Thought I was worshiping God. I thought that was Jesus coming down that garden path behind the Methodist preacher, and it wasn't. When I learned that Jesus didn't have long hairs, he wasn't pretty. That wasn't him at all. It was a false God. Verse 12. So the eternal alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth, that he might eat the increase of the field. He did that with us as a physical nation. He did it with us as a church. And he made him to suck uh, honey out of the rock and oil out of the plenty rock. Christ is the rock, and that's where we suck nurture, the milk and the honey of the Word of God. Uh, But he also gave us a land flowing with milk and honey, so that even physically, out of nothing, we got something. So he says, butter of cattle, milk of sheep, with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan, and goats with the fat of kidneys of wheat or wheat berries. And you did drink the pure juice of the grace. So God gave us the land that is overflowing, blessings, and you can use that on a physical level or you can use it on a spiritual level. Certainly no church in the end time or any religion across the face of the earth had the knowledge, the understanding of the word of God that Worldwide Church of God had. And we did not follow it and God God's giving us inspiration, with giving us insight, and greater knowledge and understanding. Because we weren't truly seeking God like we would seek silver and gold. And only as we seek it like we would bury treasures, uh, does God say then that He will reveal it to us. But even in spite of all these blessings, notice what He says would happen. Verse 15. But Jeshurun, which was another word for Israel, waxed fat and kicked. You are waxed fat. You were grown sick. We're an obese nation. It's hard to be an American and not be overweight. There are some who are skinny, but not the majority. And we also waxed fat spiritually, thinking we were just doing fine. Thank you. Then he forsook God, which made him. Lightly esteemed the rocks of his salvation. Now, they were not even offered salvation then, physical blessing of salvation, but not salvation as we understand it, and not the rock of salvation as we understand Christ to be. So, this again is written in such a way that it wasn't just then, but it could be a prophecy for today. And it has language that fits the New Testament beautifully. So, it is a prophecy for us today, and of true salvation, by the rock Christ, <clears throat> They provoked him to jealousy, with strange gods. And isn't that what Revelation 3 says, he says? He's a jealous God who spewed us out because we were seeking other gods and were not on fire for him. It isn't that you have to be an absolute heathen. He just doesn't like lukewarmness. He doesn't like whole-hum attitudes. He doesn't want us to go through the motions. He wants us to be on fire for him, passionate about his truth and about him. That's what he's after. That's why he says, when you turn to me with your whole heart, I will turn my face to you. He doesn't. He's after the passion. He's after the emotion. Not just, Keeping the Sabbath, oh, um, keeping the holy days, going to the sea, but worshiping Him with passion, with love, with feeling—that's what He's after. We're going through the motions. We're keeping the basic tenets of His law. That's not what's missing. It's the passion that is missing. Verse 17, they sacrificed to devils, not to gods. So, well, Christ told the Jews, you worship you know not what. No, no. Your God is the devil. He's saying the same thing to ancient Israel as he did to the Jews and what he says to the end time church as well. To gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came up, that came newly up. We have things to worship today that didn't exist in that day. We have our modern electronics and our movies and our music and all kinds of things that, that take our time away from God. There's so many glittering things that may not in and of themselves be wrong, but computers and televisions and iPods and, and texting and all of those things can get our minds so much on ourselves and on humans that we simply don't have time for God. And it isn't the electronic device that's wrong. It's the continual use of it that eats up our time that is the problem. So we look to other things. In verse 18, of the rock that begat you, you are unmindful, and a forgotten God that formed you. Who is the creator? What does he tell us to do in Romans one twenty? says, look to the creation. That is how you will come to comprehend and understand God. We need to spend time looking at that which God has created. We need to go out and contemplate a flower, grass, trees, the sky, clouds, the warm and woolly and other types of creatures that God has made upon the earth. We need to get out in creation more and see what God has made. Now, that is not the way of the Americans today. We spend most of our free time when we're not working or eating with electronic things, TVs, computers, radios, music. We don't get out and contemplate the creation of God. That is a tragedy of the times. We need to consider that. But consider the creation. That's what Paul advised him there in Romans 1. That's how you see and understand the creator and what he has done, and that is by the things that he has made. We are doing ourselves a disservice if we don't take time to spend looking at the stars, to spend time looking at the things of creation, because that reminds us that there's a God up there. We get reminded that there's a CBS, and a CNN, and a ABC, and a, you know, we get reminded of those things all the time uh, by electronics in our house. Turn the stupid things off, we go out and consider the things of God. You'll be far better off. Doesn't mean you can't do the things at times, and part of the time. But what's most important to us, brethren, that's what it amounts to. That's, that's a wrong God. That's a new God. That's a God these Israelites didn't know. But these are newly created gods. It's not, you don't fall down on your knees and say, Oh dear, I thought I loved thee. Uh, this is the way you worship it. The way you worship it is by denying the signs to the true eternal God, And spending time with those things would take you away. And if it takes your time and your energy away, then it is an idol. Verse 19. And when the eternal saw it, he abhorred them because of the provoking of his sons and of his daughters. Now, Titus, what's verse 18? You're unmindful of the God that begot you the one that formed you, the creator God. You don't spend time. You're unmindful. He doesn't come to your mind often enough. And as a result, God has abhorred us. That's why he turned his face from us. Because of the provoking of his sons and of his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a very presumptuous, self-willed generation Children in whom is no faith. That is an end time prophecy from Moses. Christ repeated, Will I find faith on the earth? You know, this nation trusts doctors. This nation trusts lawyers. This nation trusts corporations. This nation trusts the Federal Reserve, <laughs> this nation trusts a lot of things. They don't trust God. We make it very simple. If we are ill, if we are diseased, we come to God. We are anointed with oil, and the prayer of faith will heal us. And Christ told, him, told people over and over, Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Not his faith, their faith. They trust They They believe. If I just touch the hem of His garment. I will be healed, and it happens. We have trouble with that. Such a simple concept. So, we give God 30 minutes. If that doesn't work, we go to the doctor. We have all kinds of drugs and junk and things that are destroying our bodies that Americans are imbibing by the dozens and hundreds and thousands. Because we think those little pills are going to heal us. No, they're not. They're killing us. Wholesale. The plague. We can't touch God. You can take all those pills for years and years and years. Some people take them for decades. Does it heal them? No. They may mask their symptoms. may ease the immediate pain. But it doesn't heal them. God says he can and will if we just believe it. Believing it is the hard part. It's easy to read it. God's a healer, I accept that, I believe that. But it's hard to accept it and live it. Children in whom is no faith. Will we find it? You'll only find it in a few. And I hope it's in me and I hope it's in you. I hope we're part of that few. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They provoke me to anger with vanity. And I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. We can assign, can assign most of the church back to the world, into the tribulation, 90% of them. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell and shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Now, does that happen in those people's time? This is a prophecy to the end. That's why it was written as a song to be sung on the lips of the seed of Israel. He's talking about the end time here. us, at the time when God is going to set fire to the earth. I will eat mischief upon them. I will send my arrows upon them. They shall be burnt with hunger and devoured with burning heat and with bitter destruction. Because he'll eat the heaven seven times hotter Look at the Revelation. Joel, Peter, Revelation, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, Christ himself in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, Haggai, talks about all this. And here it is in the Song of Moses. I will send the teeth of beasts upon them with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword without and terror within shall destroy both young man and the virgin. The suckling also with the man of gray hairs. so young and old, baby, old people. I said I would scatter them into corners. I would make the remembrance of them cease from among men. Now what we read back there in chapter 28, I would feed our own children. He's so starving to death. What happened to the view and the gentle rain that God said he would give? Violence coming. Horrors coming. Were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely, unless they should say, our hand is high and eternal, has not done all this. Those attributed to time and chance. No, God is going to make it horrible, terrific. Awful, so that they can't say, "Ah, oh, we've done this. But they are a nation void of counsel. Neither is there any understanding in them. What do we call our lawyers? Counselors. So we counsel them in the needs of our lives. I'm not saying there's never a time to see a lawyer, but we depend upon them. We're a litigious society. We're void of any good counsel, whether it be the preachers, the politicians, the lawyers, or anybody else. Neither is there any understanding in them. There isn't in the nation, basically, there isn't in the church anymore. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. We are a nation and a church which looks for instant gratification. We want to be happy now. We want to. Enjoyment now, entertainment now, and we don't consider the latter end, where it will lead us. The now generation. How should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight, except their rock had sold them, and the eternal had shut them up? God was shutting us up, holding us back, sold us out, because we would not look to him the gentle rain is turning into a hailstorm. It says in Revelation, they'll send great hailstones up to hundreds of gallon and weight up to 120 pounds. Terrible destruction. No gentle, loving rain there. So they're not, they're, their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. Got a different God, not the true rock that we have revealed to us. We went back to the rock of this world, for their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Are we becoming more and more a homosexual nation? Their grapes are as grapes of gall; their clusters are bitter. So even though we might produce fruit, it's a bitter fruit. The grapes are supposed to be sweet and juicy, but we are of the vine of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their wine is the poison. Of dragons and the cruel venom of a bat. Is not this laid up his soul of me and sealed them up, up among my treasures? Uh, to me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and things that shall come upon them, make haste. Doesn't he say it will come suddenly in a day, in an hour, in the book of Revelation and in Isaiah and other places? Well, our foot will suddenly slip, and the day of our calamity is at hand. And then it's going to, well, Isaiah 29 says, lean out of the wall and collapse. For the Eternal shall judge His people and repent Himself for His servants when He sees that their power is gone. Talks about when the power of the holy people is scattered in Daniel 12 verse 7. So He's talking not just to the nation, but to the church as well. And there is none shut up or left. Unsaved back. And he shall say, where are their gods, their rock, in whom they trusted? What happened to God? Where did he go? Well, he hid his face. Would you eat the fat of their sacrifices and drink the wine of their drink often? Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. Look to those things that you've looked to before. Do they help? Does this world have the answers for it? you? No. Know, God called you out of it and went back to it. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God with me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. There's the God of creation. There's the one to fear. He's the one that has life and eternal life in His hand. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. If I decide you're going to be destroyed, there's no place you can go to hide, whether you go into the depths of the sea or in the outer space. So I lift up my hand to heaven, and I say, I live forever. If i wet my glittering sword, and my hand take hold on judgment, God says, if I decide I'm going to bring the sword on you, it's coming, you better watch out. There's no there's no getting away from it. I will render vengeance to my enemies, and will reward them that hate me, and I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh. And that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenge upon the enemies. Now, that happened to ancient Israel. That happened to these people. But it didn't happen... And quite the volume, the levels of the, the intensity that this seems to indicate, and in which the other end time prophecies indicate. Rejoice, O you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. Doesn't he say that we have to wait there in Hebrews until um, those people also come around to be resurrected? He will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful to his land and to his people. So, this is mercy that will come when he avenges the blood of his servants. And he does that at the end time. That's according to Hebrews in the book of Revelation. And Moses came and spoke all the words of this song in the ears of the people, he and Hosea, the son of Nun. Or Joshua, should be not Hosea, the son of Nun. So Joshua was standing there with Moses when he did that. And Moses made an end of speaking, all these words to all Israel. I think I'll stop there. We're getting close to the end, and I don't have time to to finish this book. I think we can finish it next time, I see. So we'll pick it up there at the end of the song. There's an awful lot in that song to consider, and a good place to stop for today. So, Thank you.